Hi, I'm Trevor, and welcome to Catching Up on Cinema. If you aren't familiar with the program, Catching Up on Cinema is a film analysis podcast wherein we introduce each other to films, expand our cinematic horizons, and, in essence, catch up on our cinema. So it is the month of November 2023, and uh, today is going to be the last episode of our No Theme or Perhaps No Time November event month. Uh, essentially, there really hasn't been a, any sort of connective tissue uh, between all the picks uh, for movie reviews that we've been doing from week to week this month. Uh, but hey, that's kind of the point. Um, in case you haven't noticed, uh, it's once again just going to be me here on the mic. Uh, so it is going to be a solo Trevor episode here. Um, and I've got a weird one for you. <laughs> uh, so once again, um, I did not really select a movie this time around. I just kind of watched some stuff recently and you know I, I pointed to the one that i thought maybe i'd have a couple of thoughts or things to say about and decide hey you know let's go with that uh so this like i said it's going to be a little bit of a weird one but try to bear with me here uh so this week i'm going to be talking about manborg uh from the year 2011 and uh funny enough this is directed by steven kostansky not kostanza kostansky uh, so, uh, story, story time. Um, the way I ended up watching this movie and subsequently reviewing it. Um, so, I don't really know much of anything about Manborg, or at least I didn't uh, going into it. This was kind of a blind buy slash blind watch, uh, both, in fact. Um, I had some free time uh, last week, uh, so I went out um, to... Actually, I had to run some errands, uh, some pre-Thanksgiving errands. I had to run over to the girlfriend's parents' house to drop off a damn turkey, uh, which ended up being delicious, by the way. Uh, so I had to drop off the frozen turkey. Uh, I had to drop off the bird uh, at the girlfriend's uh, parents' house. Uh, and it just so happens that in their neck of the woods, uh, there is a, a small mall nearby that I happen to like. It's called Crossroads. Um, and they also happen to have a half-price books. At Crossroads, uh, which I'm quite fond of. Uh, unfortunately, Half Price Books, uh, the locations that were closest to me um, have long since closed down. They were some of my favorite hangouts uh, back in the day, uh, but these days it's kind of out of the way. Um, so I took advantage of, of the trip out to the girlfriend's folks' place, uh, and also on the way back decided to go to Half Price Books and uh, <laughs> buy exactly zero books uh, because I'm I'm a movie guy, not so much a book guy. I do read, actually. I, <laughs> I am French. No, I'm not. Um, but no, I, I do read occasionally. Um, but m my passion is very much film. Anyway, I perused uh, their movie section, their used movie section. Though if you're not familiar with Half Price Books, essentially... Um, most of the inventory that they stock is secondhand, uh, and as such, it is, it's not exactly half price, uh, not literally half price, but the prices tend to be a little bit cheaper uh, than buying straight retail. Um, so if you get lucky, uh, sometimes you can find some really neat stuff, and funny enough, I, I, I kind of did. Uh, just full disclosure, I'll just tell you straight up what I got that day. Uh, so Manborg, obviously, I, I grabbed that on DVD. I don't actually know uh, if there is a Blu-ray of this one. Um, I hope not, uh, because I don't imagine this movie would look great on Blu-ray. I feel like maybe the the low fidelity of, of the DVD format does us some favors, and, and we'll, we'll get into that, I guess, when we get into it. But I picked up Manborg. As I said, it was a blind buy. I didn't really know anything about it. Um, th really, the reason I picked it up was because, one, it was sealed. Two, it was the right price. Uh, and three, um, I didn't remember where I knew him from, but Steven Kostansky's presence uh, on the box, um, his name being listed as director and writer and everything in between, kind of Robert Rodriguez style, Um that name registered with me, and I did not do my due diligence. I didn't actually double-check as to why that name jumped out at me. Uh, but I brought it home with me, and by the time I was sitting down to watch it, I I did look it up, and it's like, oh, Psycho Goreman. Um, and not only that, uh, The Void as well, which uh, I believe is a movie that we did actually review uh, for Catching Up on Cinema. Um, so this is one of those guys that's like, I've crossed paths with him 
um, several times, actually, uh, kind of unexpectedly, where it's like, I'm, I couldn't claim to be like a fan of his. I can't claim to have been like following his career or anything like that. Um, but there's a reason why his name was jumping out at me. And it's because I have seen some of his previous work. Um, so yeah, I, already, I listed a couple of them off. Um, I, we did, we watched and reviewed The Void. Um, Kyle, of all people, was actually super hyped uh, for Psycho Goreman. Um, we didn't end up reviewing that, um, but that was one of those on the horizon uh, projects for him. Uh, I think it came out in like 2020-ish. Um, he was really, really looking forward to that one. I think he was even more hyped than I was for that one. Um, I, I'm the guy who bought the Blu-ray of it, um, but we both watched it. We haven't reviewed it. I don't think we will. Um, but if you, a little bit, if you look a little bit deeper uh, into Stephen Kostansky's credits uh, as a filmmaker, he comes from a makeup effects background, which is kind of perfect for this movie and all the other ones I mentioned. Um, and he's he has so many credits attributed to him that's like if you watch movies that have intensive makeup effects in the modern age more than likely you've seen examples of his work uh do a little digging on his imdb you'll uh, you'll be you'll be very surprised uh the prod like the like the extent of his contributions to to hollywood cinema despite being a very 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 canadian individual that makes largely no budget canadian films um when he's serving as a director as a makeup effects technician though he does seem to be uh somebody that the studios contact when it comes time for some good old-fashioned practical makeup effects and whatnot um anyway yeah i i picked up manborg um as well as uh last nights um plural knights um but like the the people like the the armored uh, soldiers um not not a not the evening um i picked that up and i haven't watched that one yet uh, that was a blu-ray it was about five dollars which is exactly the right price um I've, it's a project i've always been curious and uh curious about um because it's director uh, kind of, I guess, similar to Manborg, although I didn't really have any expectations of Manborg going in. Last night's I haven't heard anything good about, but it is directed by uh, Kazuaki Kiria, uh, who is a Japanese filmmaker, in case you couldn't tell from the name, um, who comes from, I believe, the world of J-Rock. Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I do believe he directed a lot of um, highly visually intense um, music videos. Um, I'm not sure exactly from which era but the point is um he is a very strong visualist kind of similar to like a, a tarsum sing i guess uh if you're familiar uh, sometimes he just goes by tarsum i think um he did the cell and uh immortals uh, very very visually intense films that have a high degree of stylism to them um anyway uh kiria uh, kazuaki kiria uh he did a movie called Kashan or Cass Hearn um, that I wouldn't say it's a good film, um, but it's really incredible to look at. Uh, I, that was from like the early to mid 2000s, I believe. Uh, he also did a film by the name of Goemon um, that very similar, very similar from an aesthetic standpoint, although it's like it's more of like a ancient times kind of a vibe, whereas Kashan is like very much a sci-fi it's based on a anime slash manga um anyway last night's uh just happens to be uh his first and i believe only english language film and it has a uh, clive owen and morgan freeman uh, along with a handful of other familiar faces in it it's supposed to be based on the chushingura uh, that would be the 47 ronin story um haven't heard much of anything good about it, but just because it's him and because it's an English language production, I'm very curious to see what it is because I actually don't really have a good idea of what it looks like or, or what its deal is. It actually, like, what little footage I've seen of it and the few screen caps I've seen suggests that it's kind of, like, visually subdued, which is it's one of those things that calls into question, like, why did you hire this guy or why did he want to do this if it's if it's not what you would expect from him. 
anyway, it, it's, it was a novelty buy, as was Manborg for that matter. All you have to do is look at the fucking cover art of Manborg for any sort of explanation as to why I would buy it for as cheap as it was. Um, it's got kind of a nifty cover is what I'm saying. Um, and then last, um, and most certainly least, uh, I picked up X-Men Apocalypse, uh, because once again, $5. And I think it was the only X-Men film I don't currently own. And that includes New Mutants, that pile of shit. Um, I think Apocalypse might be worse than that, though. I think I strongly believe that Apocalypse is probably the worst X-Men film that currently exists. Um, so yeah, I just com- I capped off the the X Men collection for my shelf for five dollars. You know, if you're if you're gonna buy that pile of shit, you may as well save some money doing it. Uh, so yeah, that was my haul uh, that day. Um, and cur- as as of recording, I've only watched Manborg of those movies. So I'm not gonna go super in depth with this. I don't know really how you could, but um, I will point out that Manborg is only about 72 minutes long. Um, it came out in 2011 and it is quite charming. Um, the cover kind of tells you most of what you need to know. Um, but I'll actually just, uh, oh, wait, 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 before I get into the movie itself, uh, there was something I wanted to do. Uh, look at me being disorganized when I have to talk to myself, uh, with myself. Um, so, uh, when you first pop in the DVD, this is something that buying, you know, ultra low budget movies, this, this is a, a neat thing that buying these kinds of movies, these, these ultra niche titles, uh, affords you. Um, and what I'm alluding to here is trailers uh, for movies that you will never see, <laughs> maybe never hear of, and definitely never see. Uh, so this DVD was published by many people, as far as I can tell. Uh, Astron 6 Films um, produced the film. Um, for apparently a thousand dollars Canadian, by the way, um, and uh, the distribution was done by Dark Sky Films. Now I haven't looked up their website or anything, but I'll just just for funsies, I'll go over the trailers uh, that play automatically when you put the disc into your player, uh, just because they were very charming to me. Uh, almost none of them looked good, um, but they're of a certain budget range and quality that I. I just find endlessly fascinating and charming. So uh, the first trailer was for a little thing called uh, Stitches, um, which is apparently about a, like a a birthday clown. So like a a low grade, like family performer clown guy who seems to have a, like a really shit life (laughs) um, who dies at a children's party because he, he trips over something in the kitchen and he falls onto the open um, dishwasher, um, which happens to have its lower rack pulled out. And there's a kitchen knife in the lower rack facing upward and it goes directly into his eye socket. And he dies at a children's birthday party after apparently a really, really bad day. Uh, kind of a neat setup. Uh, anyway, uh, the movie, as far as I can tell, is like a, a, a teen slasher movie where the killer is the resurrected clown so he's like a zombie clown um who it's not explicitly stated in the trailer but it seems to be implied that he's coming he's come back from the dead like 10 years later or something to kill the children who were at that party who are now uh, horny teens um so he like crashes a, a, a a kegger party kind of situation and uh the trailer like has really bad sound design and re- really terrible stock music attached to it, but the couple of clips that they show uh, do make it look like they they had him make extensive use of like clown props in his killings, like some some of the tools of the trade that, that you would expect a, a corny clown character to utilize to kill people. Almost all of it's there. It's like it's present and accounted for. Uh, we even get a, a mini tricycle gag at one point. Didn't look good. But it's like, you know, like it looks like they tried. It looks like they had an idea and they just kind of ran with it. Um, next up, we had uh, Mientras Duermes, uh, which I guess it means while you sleep in Spanish. But uh, the English title they assigned to it was Sleep Tight. Uh, this appeared to be a creepy psychological thriller that takes place in an apartment complex in Barcelona. Uh, it looked kind of kind of creepy. There's some stuff going on with like a guy with a really bad hairline hanging out with a kid and spying on like a, a hot young lady at an apartment complex. 
I can't tell if there's any supernatural shenanigans or anything or anything along those lines, but it, it's, a, it's a creepy stalker movie in an apartment complex in Barcelona. You could do a lot worse. Um, and next up was something called hypothermia, uh, which, which appears to be about uh, an evil merman that comes out from uh, beneath the ice at like a uh, ice fishing lake. Um, Michael Rooker is here. Uh, he's the only face I recognize in the whole thing. But yeah, it's Michael Rooker versus the merman. And good God, they, they there are certain instances where in the marketing of your, your monster film, you you really don't want to show people what the thing looks like. And th- this was one of those cases where it's like, you know, I think there's a reason like, like to, to give an example, Godzilla 1998, the, the Roland Emmerich Godzilla movie, the one that I hate, the one that ruined my childhood, apparently uh, the marketing of that movie never once showed his fucking face. His weird Patrick Totopoulos designed marine iguana rectangular fucking head that, if you ask me, looks a little wonky. Uh, they never once showed his face, and there it was done strategically because they were building Mystique. I don't think it was because it looked bad. It was just, you know, if, if you keep people guessing, then they have to buy a ticket to find out what this big giant thing that has oversized feet actually looks like. Uh in this case, in hypothermia's case, it's like maybe they should have gone that route just because it looks so shit. <laughs> because, good God, the, the way this monster looks is just, it's terrible. Like, it's laughable and then some. Um, and But you can tell Michael Rooker seems like he showed up, as he always does, as far as I can tell. He does a lot of direct-to-video schlock, has been doing it for a long time in between, like, Guardians of the Galaxy movies and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, uh, hypothermia looked kind of, I'm, I'm a sucker for creature features, but that one looked kind of garbage. Like that looked like sub sci-fi channel level dreck. Um, and last up was, um, my sucky teen romance. And the way that they marketed this was they had a, they had a, a title credit here that said, quote, from teen sensation, Emily Hagen's. And I had to look that up. And here's where we found, this is where I found like a a really funny little connection. Um, Seems to be the theme of this episode is funny little connections that I didn't know were there until I did my research. Um, Emily Hagen's is, is, I guarantee you, not a household name. Uh, I didn't know who that was, but I looked them up and instantly, even, even though their filmography is nothing that would be like familiar to me, I figured out who they were just because of uh, some conversations that I've had with my buddy Brad uh, from the Cinema Speak podcast. Uh, Emily Hagen's uh, teen sensation, Emily Hagen's, uh, is the director of a movie by the name of Pathogen, which came out in 2006. And kind of the claim to fame is that she was, I believe, 12 years old when she quote directed that movie. I, I believe she did direct it but the point is she was 12 years old when she made that film and that film is currently available on blu-ray it wasn't at the time uh this trailer was was put to to was pressed to this dvd because this movie came out in the manborg came out in 2011 but um pathogen uh, received a full-ass blu-ray release in the year 2022 courtesy of agfa uh, the American Genre Film Archive, uh, which my buddy Brad is kind of a fan of um, and has purchased some discs from. Um, so that was really funny to see Emily, a teen sensation, Emily Hagen's. I'm like, who the fuck is that? And then I look it up. It's like, oh, shit, it's it's the little girl that made the, the pathogen movie that Brad was telling me about. I didn't know the story behind the movie until Brad had told me. So thanks, buddy, if you're listening. Um but yes, My Sucky Teen Romance is presumably uh, a movie that she directed around 2010, 2011 or something. Uh, and it's about a like a comic con um, where there is a real life vampire stalking the con and he bites a boy and who bites a girl. And then it turns into like, a, we got to find the, the master vampire so we can stop all the vampires uh, from taking over the con. It looked cute. It's ultra low budget, um, but it looked cute. Anyway, Man Bork. 
Uh, so I'll just read the back of the box to give you a plot description. I should probably take to doing this more often. I, I lean on Kyle too much to give plot summaries. Uh, I tend to skip over them, uh, <laughs> leaving you, the, the audience slash the listener, um, completely in the dark uh, in doing so. Apologies. Uh, so, <clears throat> the armies of hell have taken over the earth, and all that stands in the way of the villainous Count Draculon and humanity's total extinction is a motley crew of misfits led by the mighty Manborg, a warrior who's half man, half machine, and all hero. When a young soldier is killed during the first war against hell, he awakens in the future as Manborg, a walking weapon and mankind's last hope for salvation. Struggling to learn the secret of his origins, Manborg unwittingly befriends a post-apocalyptic Australian punk. Australian in air quotes, by the way. That accent is... It's obnoxious and it kind of sucks. Uh, a knife-wielding vixen and a kung fu master. Before finally squaring off against Count Draculon in a desperate and bloody battle to take back the Earth. All of that is true. All of that happens in the movie and that is actually a very succinct uh, summary of all of its 72 minute runtime. So thanks man Borg. Um, yeah, this movie is very light on narrative and characterization. Um, this movie is almost like a, like a special effects demo reel for its creator. Uh, Steve, Steven Kostansky's name is all over virtually every credit, like production credit that exists in the world of film. Uh, in regards to this film, as I said, it was produced for a, they, claim about a thousand dollars canadian and i believe it um this is very much a sci-fi film via hot glue gun uh which is uh, i don't know if anyone's ever, if anyone else has ever used that expression but it's kind of something i'm attempting to coin i've used that expression in conversation before but it, it's a it's an aesthetic of cheap sci-fi film uh that i find very charming i call it sci-fi via hot glue gun uh, because basically it's like you take found objects, fasten them to each other, spray some chrome on it, put some copper wire over some shit. Basically, you just, just pile shit on top of shit for no money, use a hot glue gun to affix everything to each other, and hey, there you go. You found something that looks vaguely sciencey or vaguely technological, and it's up to the viewer to use their imagination. And... That is very much the, the vibe and the aesthetic of this movie, and personally, I find it very, very charming. Uh, and definitely not something that works for everyone, but definitely something that works for me. Um, as I said, the movie is not very concerned about narrative or storytelling or theming or anything along those lines. It's basically uh, some really nifty action scenes, uh, some pretty interesting costumes, some very solid makeup effects, some really impressive uh, stop-motion effects, um, and a whole host of, of green screen effects that basically the movie couldn't exist without. Um, supposedly, uh, I mean, not supposedly, it's basically this movie was shot in a man's garage. He had, he had actors, like he actually had people willing to help out, and presumably he had some, some help building props and stuff like that. But basically the entire movie was shot on a chroma Cree uh, backdrop, um, presumably green screen, potentially blue, who knows. Um, but yeah, almost every, every shot in this movie is a special effect in some capacity. And it's really impressive what he was able to do. This is very much kind of like a every trick in the book type affair where it's like we're working with no money, but we do have time because apparently post-production on this took years, uh, and I believe it just because of the sheer number of assets and layers used in the composition of a lot of these these chroma key shots and whatnot. Like just putting together the background effects and doing all of the individual animations for all of the many, many moving objects uh, present in virtually every shot in the film takes a lot of it takes a lot of labor not necessarily like artistry or craft or anything but that like that but it's not it these are things that can't be done quickly uh these are things that i've had to do myself uh, speaking from experience um but yeah uh, the, as i said in terms of like character and stuff the movie doesn't have a whole lot that's trying to accomplish there it's mostly just an excuse for some some neat 
uh, references to other movies, um, some very, very nifty special effects, and some, frankly, like very well-imagined and storyboarded uh, action sequences. Uh, there's the, the timing and the angles utilized and the amount of impact in some of the, some of the like, blows landed on people are pretty impressive. Almost has like a Samurai Jack or like a Powerpuff Girls kind of vibe to it. Um, it cannot be stressed enough, though, just the sheer number of uh, references to like sometimes explicit, but sometimes just like mild allusions to other things that you, that presumably this filmmaker is a fan of that just based on the cover art for the movie, like if you are watching Manborg, more than likely you have seen a lot of the same movies that Steven Kostansky has and therefore will probably appreciate a lot of these references like just in terms of the sound design like there's a ton of lucasfilm sound library sound effects being utilized um some of the monsters in the movie um make this is a really 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 specific reference so i apologize if this goes over your head but um, to me it's it it struck a chord because i was like oh i know that one um there's a few monsters in this movie that make this particular like yawning groan that uh, the William Birkin, uh, the G-Virus monster from Resident Evil 2, uh, from, what was that, 1998, I believe, um, th they use that monster's roar um, pretty much explicitly um, to voice some of the monsters in this film. Uh, I believe there was like a doom door sound effect, maybe even some gun sound effects as well. I don't remember picking up any monster groans that came from doom. Maybe those are too obvious. Um, I did mention Kashan earlier, Cashern. Um, it is, it's Kashan, even though it's spelled uh, in English, Cashern. Um, when uh, the, the female, what, what did they call her on the back of the box? I, a, when the knife wielding vixen, uh, uses her knives on people um, they do kind of like a almost like a like a cutie honey kind of effect where there's like a, a flash and like a particular sound sound effect that plays that I kind of linked it to Kashan where like when Kashan like kills a robot monster or something like that there's a like a kind of a freeze frame sound effect that plays where it's like a slow motion flash um, I want to say maybe it was lifted directly from that um, and it was very effective um, because you can tell that um, there were some people in the cast of this film that that had like some legitimate like fighting slash like um, martial arts capability, but very few, very few did. It was just kind of like one or two people <laughs> um, that did some pretty impressive moves. Everybody else was just kind of like like hitting their marks in front of the green screen and then relying on the director to edit the shit out of it um, and make it look like something. And for the most part, I, I credit this director, Steven Kostansky, um, for accomplishing that. Um, because aside from a couple of awkward poses here and there, um, he masks the, uh, the lack of ability of his actors quite well. He makes everybody look pretty fucking cool in this movie. Um, but yeah, uh, those were the sound effect references that I noticed. Um, speaking of martial arts, um, Ludwig, Ludwig Lee uh, plays a character by the name of Number One Man, uh, who I want to say, like, his attire is very much like Liu Kang uh, or maybe even Johnny Cage um, from the very first Mortal Kombat. Um, he may be, his name being Number One Man may be a reference to, say, the original Street Fighter, like Ryu. Um, just player one, essentially. Um, he was very, very good uh, when it comes to his actual martial arts capability. They definitely made really good use of him. He's able to do some pretty impressive aerial kicks and stuff like that. He's got a pretty good physique on him, too, and they make f quite a lot of use of that. Um, they even make light of it from time to time. Um, I need to point out that uh, he is dubbed in the film, and... If you look this man up, uh, he is dubbed by a massively prolific voice actor um, by the name of Kyle Herb, uh, Hebert, or Herbert, or Hebert, I think. <laughs> I'm not sure on the name. Uh, anyway, uh, if you look up his credits, um, he's done dub work, like voice dubs for uh, name and anime. He's worked on it. Um, 
he does the voice of number one man and i don't really quite get the reference um it could be that he was recruited because he served as the narrator for the funimation dub of dragon ball z um but he's doing kind of uh, like i don't know not a scooby-doo voice or something but i couldn't quite understand what the gag was supposed to be but a lot of the things that he is asked to say kind of similar to um was it American Dad, uh, the way they utilized um, Patrick Stewart on that show, and very similarly, also a Seth MacFarlane production, um, Family Guy, the way they made use of um, Adam West. Basically, you have an actor who has an incredible voice, and you, the way you make use of him is you make him use that incredible voice to say exactly the dumbest and most ridiculous things imaginable. Just for your own amusement. And that that's kind of what they did with number one man, uh, with Kyle Hebert, uh, doing the voice where it's like, he's not it, like, he's not nonsensical, but there's just, he's just so out of step. His tone is just so out of step with the rest of the cast that it's, it's just kind of a gag that even if you don't understand it, it probably puts a smile on your face, or at least it did mine. Um, anyway, yeah, the character of Manborg is, very much like a, a robocop type character although i kind of i kind of found like a, a couple of potential references in here like the this is where i'm stepping out of like explicit references and starting to talk about things that i'm just theorizing so the way manborg comes about is as the back of the box described he is a soldier he is fighting the agents of hell uh, he is killed in battle but then his corpse is taken by some mystery person um, and the opening title sequence, which, by the way, uh, is very well scored and edited. Uh, the, the flow and the sound of that edit, of that opening sequence, the credit sequence, is really solid. Really good stuff. Um, great, great visual storytelling. Um, and good effects work as well. Um, he is turned into a cyborg uh, against his will. Uh, so he's dead, but he is resurrected as Manborg. Um, and then he wakes up some indeterminate amount of time in the future uh now a ultra obscure reference um that i'm pretty sure steven kostansky has seen this film i'm pretty sure he has just based on some of the folks he had working on psycho Goreman. because if if memory serves I, i'm talking directly out of my ass i'm not researching this um i want to say that he brought in um some japanese makeup effects technicians uh for designing a lot of the monster characters that show up in psycho Gorman. i'm using that as evidence to suggest that he has familiarity with japanese makeup like japanese makeup effects tech technicians uh from you know years past um anyway um hakaider or hakaida uh, is a Japanese tokusatsu film from, I believe, 1995 uh, that kind of has a similar opening to this, where it's like Hakaida, is, he's, uh, he's typically a villain character. However, he, he was given his own short film in 1995, and he's, he's kind of like a, like a, for lack of a better term, a dark knight or a black knight in it, where it's like he's a, he's a force of vengeance and fury that also occasionally does good. And that's kind of how he's framed in the movie where he is still a bad guy, but there are worse people out there that he, by vanquishing them, he can do some good uh, to the rest of us. Anyway, the opening of that movie is him sealed away in a vault and some people just happen upon him and he kills them all. And then he leaves the vault, not knowing who he is. Uh, similarly, same director, Keita Amimiya, uh, also did Zeram, uh, which kind of has a similar opening to that. Keita Amimiya seems to repeat himself quite a lot. It's like one of those obsessions of his. He seems to have some aesthetic or some concept that he keeps noodling at to try to get exactly right. But anyway, Hakaida, like, kind of opening kind of reminded me of that. But on top of that, as you proceed deeper into Manborg, I started to think of, and maybe this is just my bias showing because I just was playing this game not that long ago, uh, Mega Man X. Um, if you're not familiar with the, the lore, uh, the extensive lore of the Mega Man X series, uh, basically the, the premise is there's the Mega Man franchise wherein a man named Dr. Light 
makes a like robot Pinocchio boy uh, named uh, Rock in Japan or uh, Rock in America, <laughs> um, and uh, he becomes Mega Man, becomes Defender of Humanity and whatnot, blah, blah, blah. Um, flash forward many, many years later, Dr. Light is at the end of his life, but he makes a another robot named X, or Mega Man X, or Rockman X, if you're Japanese, um, and he seals him away in a vault, in a capsule, because I believe the idea was that the he has... He has, like, unparalleled decision-making capability or something along those lines. And, like, his supercomputer systems built into that capsule need to check and recheck to make sure that he will function correctly, that he will actually have sentience when he wakes up. And the process will take longer than Dr. Light has to live, so he seals him away in the hopes that he'll wake up in a future environment where he can be useful. Or something like that. Anyway, it's another situation where it's like a, a, a robot figure is buried and then pops up later. Um, it's probably supposed to be a reference to Star Wars in Manborg, given that there are a lot of Lucasfilm uh, sound effects in the film. Um, but there is a sequence where we have like a force ghost type effect where Manborg projects a image of a character who, who he interacts with, who is, you know, like a, a blue uh, holographic image that as i said it's more than likely supposed to be a reference to star wars but me having very recently been playing mega man x and mega man x2 uh beat them both by the way um i instantly thought of dr light and the various capsules that he left sprinkled around the environment for x to pick up um like after many years after his passing anyway i'm just rambling at this point um there's a piece of music that plays in the movie that um I they used a, an obscure chunk of it, but I want to say it's from um, the new Gladiators, um, or it's was it the the Warriors of the Year twenty seventy two. It's a it's an Italian uh, like Running Man esque uh, like sci fi movie. Um, super super exp- obscure reference, but I want to say when they're driving to the arena. In this movie, in Manborg, I want to say that they lifted a piece of music from that movie, which is, I'm not crying foul on that. It's just like one of those ultra obscure deep cut references that I I might be wrong, but I don't think I am. Um, but yeah, uh, the story basically goes like Manborg wakes up, he, he's in the future somewhere, he doesn't know who he is, um, and then he gets roped into this arena Um, where he joins up with all the aforementioned characters, the Australian punk guy and his sister, the the knife-wielding vixen, as they call her on the back of the box. Um, The Australian guy sucks. Uh, His his performance is just grating all around. It doesn't help that he's also supposed to be abrasive. Like, he's supposed to be in opposition to Manborg. Like, he's the guy that's like, we don't want you hanging around with us, Manborg. Like, that's why he's here for two-thirds of the movie. Uh, he and his sister are also in the arena. So it's number one man, uh, those two, and Manborg. They get tossed into the arena. And Manborg is... It's funny because he's like largely useless from time to time and very clumsy and awkward. Like there, There's a certain aspect of his performance that I did find kind of funny where he's frequently too loud, uh, often standing in the wrong place, um, and just just very, very stilted and awkward. It's like not laugh out loud hilarious, but there are some moments here and there where it the movie did catch me off guard and make me laugh. A very strange sense of humor in this one. Um, but sometimes it works. In particular, there's one character, like exactly one character, um, portrayed by Jeremy Gillespie, who uh, I believe is our writer, potentially one of our producers as well. But he's he's a... He's a bad guy character who is wearing a, like a rubber monster mask throughout the entire film. And he just, he has like this certain affectation to his, to his speech. He has this certain way of doing his line deliveries. That's just really kind of silly and not at all what his appearance would suggest it to be. Like he's, he's set up to be like a menacing character and he gets like two sequences in the whole movie where he, he, 
ever seems actually threatening. But for the most part, his whole story arc is about him uh, falling madly in love with the knife-wielding vixen, uh, Mina, I think is her name, um, and trying to figure out how to tell her he likes her um, as she is held prisoner by him. Um, and his interactions with all the characters are great. Like he, he is just kind of effortlessly funny. And there's so many takes in this movie that I, I want to guess the actor was just riffing, uh, and credit to the guy, uh, credit to Jeremy Gillespie. Like he, he often did make me laugh in a movie that didn't always accomplish that task. Um, he really stood out in, in particular, the bit when he's, he just like starts smoking <laughs> and like, he's, he's being told like, oh, like, Oh, you're smoking again. He's like, don't you don't, don't just, just don't you start. <laughs> it's, it, I'm ruining the bit, but it was pretty funny. I liked him a lot, but yeah, Manborg is, he's, he's got like rocket launchers in his, his elbow. He's got a laser eye. Uh, his one arm turns into a machine gun. Uh, he does have his POV is essentially the Terminator with the, the, the all red vision. He has virtual boy goggles on. If you get that reference, you probably don't loser. Um, but yeah, uh, he's very, very formidable. He is supposed to be incredibly powerful, but largely incompetent. And in the process of discovering his abilities, uh, akin to like, I guess what the greatest American hero or whatever, or wasn't the gimmick to that show. He finds a super suit and, but he doesn't have the instruction manual or something. Um, so yeah, throughout the whole movie, he, he's like continually like busting out new tricks here and there. Uh, a lot of which are rendered quite well. Um, anytime a monster gets blown up in this movie, it is spectacular. Uh, it does happen quite frequently in the movie. As I said, the movie seems to largely exist as an excuse to showcase special effects and action sequences, like action design in particular. Like a lot of the storyboarding that went into, like the conceptualization of a lot of these sequences is largely where the charm comes from because the execution be can be kind of rough from time to time um but the concepts at work and the angles utilized and the timing is i'll just say this much you can tell that steven kostansky has an animation background um some of his stop motion work is actually uh, on this dvd in the form of bonus content um and there's a handful of like show-stopping moments uh in his animation background uh such that it's like yeah you can tell this this, this guy is very comfortable with planning out his shots and fig like knowing what knowing how to get the most impact out of a sequence character development and and storytelling maybe not so much but but like just visceral thrills uh, very 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 skilled at um yeah any anytime a monster gets blown up in this though it's it's really it's really fun because it's a combination of effects where it's like we're, we're using quite a lot of digital assets in this. We're using a lot of digital explosions and, and like muzzle flares and things of that nature. But whenever it comes time for like gory bits and whatnot, it's largely uh, like puppets uh, on a green screen that are standing in for people. So they'll, they'll say, for instance, um, the sequence that comes to mind that's really, really cool is when Manborg first uh transforms his arm into a machine gun not really knowing he's capable of doing that by the way he does after he kills his first dude manborg does have like an existential crisis where he like falls on his back and is like oh my god what have i done which is kind of honest uh unexpected but very very honest for the for the arc of the character because you know i don't think he'd killed any humans before only demons up to that point and maybe not even demons because as far as i could tell he wasn't even that great of a soldier before he died um but yeah his arm turns into a machine gun and he mows down this this demon dude and you can see like the dude in the monster costume like doing the whole bit where he's getting all shot up he's doing the the, the shoulder shimmy like he's getting riddled with bullets and stuff and they use the the muzzle flash of the machine gun to mask a transition uh from a man in a in a monster suit to what appears to be either a miniature or a dummy um, like standing in for that dude that then just gets burst open and all sorts of goop comes out of him. 
and hiding it, hiding that transition behind the muzzle flash is is really ingenious and simple, and it's it's it executed very well. And they do that same trick quite often, where it's like they'll in plain sight hide a transition to to have what appears to be a dude I uh, transform into some sort of goo filled prop that then explodes and gets ripped open or whatever. There's a lot of gore in this movie, and it's largely done very very well. A lot of stop motion as well, as I mentioned before. There's a lot of creatures and stuff uh, that end up like slinging lasers and all sorts of projectiles at our characters. Um, there's one monster in particular that has very much um, the Void vibes to it. There's a couple monsters, actually, that very much made me think of the Void. Steven Kostansky seems to have a, a thing for skulls and uh, monstrous renditions of like humanoid faces. Um, a lot of... Uh, a lot of like beady light flares standing in for for eyes that seems to be a thing that he likes to do but yeah there's one monster in particular that actually is kind of like actually legitimately menacing um i think it's called shadow mega or something like that um they do set up some sort of relationship between her and the the knife wielding vixen uh, although that does seem to get tossed out the window it may have just been me misreading uh, the flashback uh, for the knife wielding vixen, um, but anyway, she the two of them have like a Ray Harryhausen style actual like melee fight between the two of them, where we get to see a human being uh, interacting um, with a stop motion figure. Um, was that dynamotion uh, or dynamation? Was was that what a uh, Ray Harryhausen used to call it? I can't remember. Um, dynamation being, um, I, if I'm remembering right. Um, the practice of having live actors um, act out choreography um, to interact with a, a stop-motion figure who will be added in post. Um, but yeah, they, they straight up do that here, where the two of them like actually get physical with each other and knock each other around a bit. Um, and that monster, the design of it is legitimately kind of, kind of spooky looking. Uh, it's very well executed. Um, there's also a really, really big monster that actually is on the back of the box here um he's the champion of the arena so our heroes actually do make it through one uh, round in the arena but then manborg uh steps out to face the champion alone and just fucking pones him uh, to use antiquated uh, internet speak that i don't sh i'm pretty sure the kids never say pwn anymore uh that's that's old timer speak now um but yeah he, he straight up wrecks the champion uh it's pre it's pretty cool um, the arena set, uh, for lack of a better term, is is very well executed. There's clearly tons of layers of of After Effects assets or what have you uh, being utilized to render the whole thing, um, and it looks really incredible. Uh, there is like a whole cityscape as well featured in the film, as well as, well as like a like kind of to make another Mega Man reference, like a a, a Doctor Wily or a, or a Sigma Tower or something like that, uh, where our our villain Count Draculon lives. Uh, speaking of our villain, um, he is apparently played by the same actor as um, Doctor Scorpius. So uh, Doctor Scorpius is like a human character who seems to be working for Count Draculon, um, but it's revealed later on in the movie spoiler alert that he was actually the one who also made Manborg and sealed him away in the hopes that similar to like a Mega Man X or something, he would come to save the day later. Um, so Dr. Scorpius and Count Draculon um, apparently are played by the same actor. Uh, Adam Brooks is his name. Uh, so he is both uh, helper and villain uh, in the movie. Uh, Scorpius shows out throughout the whole movie as kind of like an aide uh, he's the Obi-Wan Kenobi figure, essentially, for our heroes. Um, and Count Draculon is seen in the in the beginning, uh, and he is he assists in the killing of the man who will become Manborg. Um, and he has two very, very distinct looks, um, both of which involve uh, intensive makeup effects and costuming, such that this actor, Adam Brooks, is unrecognizable like i wouldn't have been able to tell you it was the same guy just because he's covered in so much makeup and he's doing a good job of covering up his voice and whatnot um i will point out adam brooks uh has worked with uh steven kostansky at least one other time maybe two or three actually they do seem to actually have like legitimate rapport they seem to be buddies or something because he's also the dad 
uh, from Psycho Goreman, and he's also been involved in other movies that he's been involved with as well. Um, so Count Draculon, uh, he looks kind of like Kane from the, the Legacy of Kane games, uh, from the first Legacy of Kane game, Blood Omen. Again, making old references to things from like 1995 that you, dear listener, may not have been alive for. Um, but later on in the movie, when he shows up for the big fight at the end, um, he actually looks like a proto-Psycho Gorman or something like that. His look has changed quite a lot. Um, he looks a lot more evil and powerful and menacing and stuff. Um, and yeah, he actually did give me some like proto-Psycho uh, Gorman vibes. Um, kind of interesting how that works. Um, I will point out, this is another kind of obscure and this reference that I might be reaching for, but the relationship between Count Draculon and Dr. Scorpius in the film very much made me think of maybe one of the most important movies in my lifetime, uh, Transformers the movie uh, from 1986. Um, If there is a movie that I've seen the most in my lifetime, it is probably that. Kind of pathetic, I know. Anyway, in that movie, um, Unicron, the big bad from Transformers the movie, uh, portrayed by Orson Welles in, I believe, his last acting role, um, has a servant in the form of Galvatron, uh, who is voiced by Leonard Nimoy. Um, Both of them are passed away. That's really sad to think. Um, And in the movie... um, Unicron is trying to get Galvatron to get the Autobot Matrix of Leadership because it is the one thing, the only thing, that can stand in his way, uh, to quote the man himself. Um, And throughout the movie, he just keeps on torturing Galvatron by uh, emitting this red light um, that gives him a nasty headache. Like, it it puts him into full-on migraine mode or some shit. Um, and Galvatron flips out and, you know, clutches his temple, his temples and goes, ah, from time to time in that movie. That's like half of the runtime of the, the second half of that movie. Um, that straight up happens in Manborg where not only that, um, the way Unicron is represented in Transformers, the movie, because he's, he's a big sentient planet. He's a, he's a mechanical planet, um, in the movie. Yeah, I know. Weird movie. Um, Later on, he transforms because it's called Transformers. That's that's what they do. Um, he turns into a big old robot uh, at the end of the movie. But in between that, when we're peering into like what like the consciousness, I guess, of Unicron, we cut to um, his core, I guess, or maybe his brain. I'm not sure. It, it seems like it's supposed to be like his core, I believe. Um, it's essentially a big spherical cluster of monitors surrounded by a whole bunch of wires and stuff. We straight up get that in Manborg, where there's a room that we cut to every now and again that has a whole bunch of monitors af- attached to it and things that are v- vexing to Count Draculon, like, say, Manborg, uh, are displayed on all the monitors simultaneously. And then, like, there's a, a ominous howl or something, again, kind of similar to Unicron. <laughs> Um, anyway, yeah, we, we have, uh, the character of Dr. Scorpius in a room with a bunch of monitors and then there's a voiceover that tortures him. And I think there was even a red light or something. He clutches his temples and falls to the ground and goes, ah, very much made me think of that movie. Um, again, though, this is my bias speaking thing references that I want to be true because, you know, I kind of enjoyed this movie and like I'm looking for things that might not be there. Uh, speaking of the movie itself, though, uh, getting back to Manborg, um, the chroma key effects are a little iffy. Uh, that's what I was alluding to when I said I'm not sure if this movie needs a Blu-ray because um, the image fidelity is just not there to begin with. So it's like if your source is crap, do you really want to polish that crap and make make the make the effects that don't look all that great when they're grainy look even worse? Um, yeah, there, there's a lot of like blurry edges around figures from shot to shot. Um, a lot of, like things that are objectively like questionable in terms of quote quality, but I don't think it actually detracts from the experience. It's like one of those things you just kind of got to acclimate to it because it's like you, this movie was made for less than a thousand dollars and it took like three years to fucking make, but and it was largely done by like one guy with a computer, like a computer. Give him a break. 
Um, and this is another one of those like 1995 references that if you weren't there, maybe you can't appreciate it the same way I do. But a lot of the movie kind of feels like an FMV game. Now, if you don't get the reference, FMV means full motion video. And dear listener, back in the day, there were there was there were games that had that made use of FMV. These days, they probably just call it cutscenes. But back in the day. To have FMV in your game was kind of a selling point. And a lot of times it would just be like, say, like cutscenes that would play out independent of your control. Um, but then there's a, a specific instance of FMV where they used to hire actors and put them on actual sets and shoot actual scenes to render things that were perhaps too complex for graphical technology at the time to render without the use of live actors. Um, and you also had whole ass games comprised of FMV footage and stuff like that. And a lot of them would be shot in blue screen rooms and such. Like I'm thinking like uh, Phantasmagoria is probably like the most, probably the most famous one. It, it wasn't exactly an FMV game in that it used a lot of, uh, I think it was actual animation, but they used a lot, a lot of really obvious human references, like live actor references to do a lot of the effects. Silverload is one that was kind of important to me back in the day. Anyway, do your research or, or you know, mind the depths of your memory um, to get the reference here. But yeah, a lot of the movie actually reminded me of playing like an old video game that has a specific type of jank and overambitiousness to to the type of effects that are rendered in it and a lot of it a lot of the presentation of those older fmv games look almost identical to manborg only difference is manborg is an instance of working within your limitations um on a on a shoestring budget those games were incredibly expensive and top of the line in terms of the technology they're employing we've come a long way is what i'm saying uh such that a guy in his garage can make a 72 minute movie called Manborg that actually has some pretty cool special effects some maybe not like super polished but like very ambitious and well imagined effects um I'm about done talking about Manborg but I would be remiss if I didn't point out that the movie actually advertises on the DVD um on the back uh, it says includes biocop that might that might be one of the biggest knocks I have on Manborg is that it's 72 minutes. It's harmless. I had mostly a good time with it. Biocop, um, the, the way the movie starts is with like an old fashioned VHS, uh, like title screen with like an orange background that says stay tuned after the feature for a sneak peek at upcoming Astron six films. This is a thing that, you know, you would get on VHS tapes back in the day. So it's it's a very explicit and loving reference to a bygone age. Here for it. Anyway, the, the credits roll on the film. Oh, wait, wait, wait. The end of the movie. I'm only paraphrasing. I can't quote it, unfortunately. There's a bit where uh, Manborg sacrifices himself to uh, bring the knife-wielding vixen back to life. Uh, he pulls, like, his... Uh, super devil juice uh he has like some goop in his heart like where his heart should be in his chest cavity uh and he pours it in her mouth when she's dead and it brings her back to life but he it's a trick he can only do once apparently so he's about to die as he's dying uh the hologram of dr scorpius um is projecting from him and telling him hey you, you did good man borg and before you die and you are gonna die uh, I got someone special uh, to say a little something to you. And uh, in walks, uh, also in like blue spectral form, uh, Manborg's human brother, uh, who we did see uh, get killed in the in the prologue of the film. And he's still in his like military costume. Anyway, he he wanders into the frame and he lo he looks directly at Manborg and he says like, and again, this is me paraphrasing. I'm going to botch all of this. I apologize. It because this really did make me laugh. Um, he says, hey, hey, bro, it's me, your brother. That much I do remember. Hey, bro, it's me, your brother. And he says, you, he says something like, you did good. I'm proud of you. And then there's a pause and he says, there's no heaven. 
<laughs> that's it. That's how he ends it. He just, there's no heaven. And then Man Pork's like, hang on. Wait, wait there's, there's no heaven? And then he passes out and dies. It's so out of left field, but for some reason it just made me crack up. Just how flat, like, just, just pause. It's not even by the way. It's just, there's no heaven. <laughs> it's like, what the... <laughs> As this is where the the you can tell it's from the same guy who made Psycho Gorman. There, this movie is pretty funny. It's not like laugh out loud funny, but there, as I said earlier, there are times where it catches me off guard, and that was definitely one of them. Also, Manborg speaking speaking and being too loud unexpectedly always kind of made me laugh. Or like it, just just like he's supposed to be being stealthy or something, and he'll just be like, hi, or something like what, <laughs> or something really loud and obvious. It, for some reason, it made me laugh. Um, anyway, Biocop. So the movie, as I said, begins telling you, hey, stay tuned. There'll be um, it will be a little commercial or something for future Astron Six titles, and they do deliver on that promise. The only problem is they over deliver. Because Biocop is a two to three minute long fake trailer, meaning there is no actual film of Biocop, but it's a two to three minute trailer, um, much greater image quality and quality of special effects contained in those two to three minutes of footage than anything in Manborg. Um, and it's terrific. Biocop had me roll it. Like, Manborg caught me off guard occasionally and made me kind of chuckle like it, it just kind of made me snicker from time to time with its charm biocop i was fucking rolling like biocop made me laugh uproariously uh because it was well it was well imagined well executed um, as i said you can tell they had much better camera equipment and not as many effects are included in the two to three minutes of footage i mean how could they it's it's a feature versus a trailer but every effect in it is of a standard of quality that is probably greater than manborg <laughs> um and it's it's kind of a one note joke but they really commit to the bit and i thought it was funny as shit i laughed so many times at the two or three minutes of biocop uh that <laughs> that comes after the movie i just watched i was like why like like maybe that's just a sign of steve kostansky's strengths as a director like maybe that's just what he's better at than than doing like a narrative feature or something because psycho gorman i remember being kind of kind of floaty as well where it's like it has some really great sequences i'm not sure how well it all connects psycho gorman is well like far in a way the the better production overall like it it is a pretty fun movie uh, it, the humor landed quite a lot better in that than than here in in Manborg for me anyway um but yeah biocop was outstanding i love biocop i will rewatch biocop in fact i gotta send that to kyle because i don't think he's seen that and i know he hasn't seen that speaking of which Speaking of Psycho Goreman, I mentioned Hakaida earlier. Hakaider. See, this is what hap this is what happens when I watch movies and don't review them. Is that these I have these thoughts, but they don't go anywhere. So now you're gonna hear about it now. So I mentioned Hakaider or Hakaida earlier. And I said that I kind of felt like maybe Steven Kostansky had seen that film. By the time you get to Psycho Goreman, I'm it has been at least three years, maybe yeah, like two or three years since I've seen Psycho Gorman, so I don't remember it crystal clear, but I do remember there's like a female semi-angelic figure in that that is like the villain of the movie, and Psycho Gorman is Psycho Gorman. He's the he's an alien devil essentially. He's a bad motherfucker. Um, the just kind of aesthetically and and in terms of like their the tonality of those two characters you have somebody who has like an angelic silhouette who is kind of like holier than thou who is actually the villain of the movie and then you have the literal fucking devil as the hero of the movie of psycho gorman very similar to hakaider where the conclusion of that movie is it takes place in a white room and he's fighting a, a white and silver robot who is named fucking michael like he's named after a goddamn angel and he even has a wing on him. Like, 
and Hakaider's all black and, and is framed as the villain by by the villains in the movie who are by comparison much worse than he is pretty sure Stephen Kosansky has seen some of the same movies as I have and probably appreciates them to the same degree that I do just guessing not certain not condemning the man or claiming that he's ripping anyone off just saying you know these are how these are how movie nerds form rapport with one another is they discover oh hey you like the same things I like does does that mean we're best friends now (laughs) did we just become best friends um but yeah that that is more than enough to be said uh about Manborg I probably talked greater than the length of the movie uh but yeah it is it's a fun little 72 minute feature um especially charming to me who uh, has had ambitions of making movies my entire life and you know looks at just the the amount of man hours that made that went into imagining some of these effects like regardless of their quality i appreciate the effort um and just the sheer level of commitment and imagination that went into bringing manborg into existence uh, a movie that was shot in a garage pretty fucking impressive and definitely look up steven kostansky's uh, filmography because you will you'll be pleasantly surprised to discover you've more than likely seen uh, some movies that he's laid hands on maybe not as director but definitely as uh you know special effects technician to some degree uh, anyway uh, this was manborg uh, from the year 2011 uh, directed of course by steven kostansky uh, and that is it for uh, no theme slash no time november here at catching up on cinema uh, it remains to be seen if we'll be t- we'll be doing another uh, Kyle's uh, cold uh, December or Kyle's killer December. I'm not sure what we're going to be calling it. We've done it before. Maybe we'll do it again. Uh, but stay tuned. Uh, we'll have some stuff coming up. Um, hopefully, if I have time, uh, I will be putting out a review of uh, Godzilla Minus One, uh, which is dropping in uh, U.S. theaters in a... Uh, advanced screening event on the 29th of november here so i'll I'll be seeing that i'll be seeing it that day uh hopefully i can get our review of that maybe not in november but shortly thereafter Uh, so look forward to that um but yeah that being said um if you'd like to catch up on any of our other catching up on cinema content you can find all of that collected on our website at catchinguponcinema.com you can also find us on the social medias in the form of the instagram at catching up on cinema as well as the twitter at catching cinema so feel free to hit me up at either of those uh and the podcast is available on pretty much every platform you can imagine including bitcade uh so fucking google it and uh, that being said thank you so much for listening and we will catch you next time